It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get right through now, it. COVID-19 vaccine are available to millions of Americans and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. It's Wednesday, which means, of course, uh, armchair politics coming up in about an hour for two hours of commentary and analysis with our roundtable regulars, uh, Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right. They will be joined today by a um, making his... Uh, inaugural uh, appearance as a, a member of the round table a uh, former national security advisor and counsel for the u.s senate armed services committee turned author of the resurrection saga and its most recent installment twilight of empire wh wise kyver or wise Carver, a.k.a. Bill, will be joining the roundtable today. Should be uh, interesting to get his perspective. But it is the first Wednesday in October, which means we're going to be uh, joined with uh, economist Chris Douglas, who uh, comes from the University of Michigan Flint, joins me by phone, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about the economy with Chris. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. Good morning. Great to be here. Um, Chris, the big news for the last several weeks has been about the infrastructure plan and uh, and also raising the debt ceiling. 
And all of a sudden in this last week, as we uh, near the deadline, I think it's coming up uh, <coughs> October 18th, uh, is uh, when uh, Janet Yellen, uh, Treasury Secretary, has uh, told the Fed chair that uh, the Treasury could exhaust its cash reserves by October 18th if the debt limit isn't raised. What does all that mean? Uh, is, is a lot of this just rhetoric and fear talk to encourage a, uh, a compromise, a, a coming together of the minds? Or is there a real serious economic uh, uh, tragedy looming if, uh, if they can't come to an agreement? So that's a good question. Um, the debt summit, the debt ceiling is a real economic crisis, but it's a completely artificial crisis in the sense that it's created by an illogical system where the Congress tells the Treasury Department, well, you have to borrow a certain amount of money to pay for the budget that we passed. And over the last couple of years, Congress has passed budgets that require lots of borrowing. Um, the federal deficit last year was over $3 trillion, which means the Treasury Department has to borrow $3 trillion to spend what Congress told it to spend. But then Congress has something called the debt ceiling, which places a limit to how much um, the national debt can be. So if the Treasury Department borrows, say, the $3 trillion to spend what Congress told it to spend, it will cross the debt ceiling, which can't happen. So the Treasury Department is unable to spend um, the money that Congress told it to spend. Hence, it's going to run out of money, um, and perhaps the government will shut down in October. So it's real illogical because, on the one hand, Congress says, well, you have to spend this amount of money. On the other hand, Congress says, well, we're not going to let you borrow to spend what we told you to spend. But I've heard it compared to, like, a person's credit card limit. And, you know, they have a certain amount they can charge up to, and then they have to stop charging or raise their credit card limit. Is is this the same thing? Kind of, um, although the credit card limit is set by the credit card company. Like, I don't set my credit card limit. I suppose I could ask the credit card company to raise it. They could always tell me no. But the debt ceiling, that's set by Congress. So it's like Congress is setting the credit card limit, and then Congress is charging things on the credit card that would exceed that limit. So that's why it's so illogical. It's like if I own the credit card company, I set my own credit card limit, and the credit card limit I set was less than what I'm charging in a given year, you just can't have it both ways. So either you would have to raise the credit limit or you would have to reduce how much you're charging, but Congress doesn't seem to be willing to do either one of those two things. You can't have those two things happen simultaneously in the sense that you have this limit and then you are charging an amount of money that would exceed that limit by mid-October. Well, one of the things that they've pointed out is that if the debt limit isn't raised, then Social Security checks might not go out. How is how are Social Security checks part of this this borrowing process when money is collected and designated for Social Security 
before the checks yeah, so go I'm out, not, and and or is it just fear mongering over this? You know, creating urgency to uh, get the debt ceiling raised. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the nuances of Social Security in the sense that uh, you're right. Taxes are collected to pay for Social Security benefits right now. If you look at your pay stub, there's something called FICA, the Federal Insurance Contribution Act. You know, that's a tax everyone pays every month, and that tax is transferred directly to Social Security beneficiaries. So that tax will still be collected even if the debt ceiling is reached. So I presume that some benefits still could be paid since that revenue would be coming in. It's just that uh, the full amount of benefits um, could not be paid because current FICA tax collections are less than the benefits being paid out, and Congress is essentially borrowing the difference. So will checks just stop if the full amount of benefits can't be paid out in mid-October, or will checks be paid out but just for a reduced amount so that the benefits paid out equal um, the tax collections coming in? I don't know. Um, I don't know if the checks just shut off if the full amount of the benefits can't be paid out. So I would say if the debt ceiling is reached, either no checks go out or checks go out but for a reduced amount. Do you know if the, the government has ever experienced a, a shutdown uh, for lack of agreement on raising the debt ceiling? Yeah, that's been happening more and more frequently. It happened really for the first time, I think, in 1995. Um, there was a standoff between um, the Newt Gingrich-led House of Representatives and the Clinton administration. And Gingrich seemed to have lost that standoff in the sense that the majority of the public blamed him and the Republicans for the shutdown and why a budget could be reached. And then, famously, there was a shutdown, I think this is in like 2017, December 2017, although I might be off a year, I know it was when Trump was president. And that was because the White House and the Democratic-led Congress couldn't come to an agreement, famously over wall funding. Um, the president wanted a couple billion bucks for the wall. The Democrats would have given it to him. Hence, no budget was reached. No debt ceiling um, increase was reached. And the government shut down for the better part of a month. So it's becoming more and more frequent that we're having these shutdowns. Um, I think there was even a shutdown during the Obama administration. And the reason is, is because every year the budget deficit is so large, which just makes it really easy to hit the debt ceiling. So suppose tomorrow Congress just raised the debt ceiling by $6 trillion, which would allow the Treasury Department to borrow another $6 trillion. Well, given the size of the deficits that are being run every year, that would only last two years before the debt ceilings hit again. And here we would be two years down the road facing the exact same issue. Whereas if you went back in time to like the 1970s or even the 1980s, it's hard to believe that we thought the budget deficit was large in the 1980s <laughs> because there's a couple hundred billion dollars a year. That seems like basically a balanced budget at this point. But if you go back to the 1980s where the annual deficit might be $200 billion, and you crank up the debt ceiling by, say, $6 trillion, well, it's going to last you for like 20 years or so. So it's just that all this borrowing that's happening makes it really easy to hit the debt ceiling so every couple of years, we have this crisis where the debt ceiling is going to be reached. Congress is refusing to raise it because of basically political posturing with the White House and the White House is politically posturing with the Congress. And that's really what's going on here with Trump. It was with the wall, 
with the Biden administration, it seems to be this $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill that they want passed and signed into law. And the Republicans are unwilling to compromise over that. Hence, a budget's not being reached. There's not a compromise on raising the debt ceiling. And, you know, on we go until mid-October. Well, is is raising the debt ceiling and passing the budget um, only connected in as much as whatever the budget determines the government needs to operate determines whether or not the debt ceiling needs to be raised? Is Correct. That, that's so, the only connection between the two. Right, because the deficits are so large that any budget the Congress passes that has a deficit is going to cause the debt ceiling to be hit. So if tomorrow a miracle happened and Congress passed the balanced budget, well, you wouldn't have to raise the debt ceiling because no additional debt would be tacked on to the national debt. But that's not going to happen. You know, the budget deficit for the next year is going to be over $3 trillion. Who knows how high it could be with the infrastructure bill or the Build Back Better bill. could be several trillion dollars. Well, that means that the Treasury Department will have to borrow $7 trillion more to cover that deficit, which means the debt ceiling will have to be raised by several trillion dollars so that the additional borrowing doesn't cause the government to go over the debt ceiling. Moderate Democrats are, are trying to encourage the uh, president and uh, progressive Democrats to pull back on the spending a little bit. Are the compromises that are being talked about enough to um, avoid needing to raise the debt ceiling, or are we so close that any amount of money spent, uh, say, for example, on the Build Back Better bill, um, is is going to cause that to need to go up? No, any amount of additional deficit spending will cause the debt ceiling to be breached. So any compromise that's reached would have to involve raising the debt ceiling unless the compromise involves a balanced budget, which means no more borrowing. And that's just never going to happen, given the size of the budget deficit right now. So the way these things usually go, like some compromises reached at the last minute, the debt ceiling is raised, which might buy a year or two before the debt ceiling's hit again. And then a year or two down the road, we have the standoff all over again. It's a grossly irresponsible way to manage the federal budget and the federal government to just be, just basically be moving from crisis to crisis, where every couple of years we have the standoff, the government could shut down, the Treasury Department could run out of money, which means it can't make the interest payments on the debt that's already been issued which would mean that if that happens, the U.S. government would be in a state of default for the first time in its history, and that the last second a compromise is reached, which pushes the problem another two years down the road. So really, it seems like the system of government we have right now is just kicking the can down the road a year or two and moving from crisis to crisis. You know, there's no long-term planning. There's no thoughts about uh, fiscal responsibility, um, how we might have a more sustainable federal budget, which should be planned for the long term. Everything is just political posturing and trying to blame the other side um, for the crisis that emerges and then trying to use the crisis to get the other side to back down to capitulate to uh, whatever the demands are. Chris, I have to take a short break. Can you stick around? 
Oh, absolutely. Okay, we'll be back with more right after this. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan, uh, Flint, who joins me by phone. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that again. Oh, no problem. It's always great to be here and talk with you. Um, just before the break, we were we were talking a little bit about the relationship between the federal budget and the debt ceiling and how that might impact um, the economy because we've been... Uh, most any of us that have been paying any attention to the headlines the last uh, week or two have seen all kinds of uh, gloomy forecasts about what might happen if the debt limit isn't lifted. And is is that typically what causes a government shutdown, is not lifting the debt limit, or is it not agreeing to a budget on time or both? Um, it could be both. So if the budget expires, well, then the federal government has no authorization to spend money and has to shut down. But usually when that happens, Congress passes something called a continuing resolution, which just continues last year's budget for this year until a new budget can be worked out. You know, that's not a great way to run things either, but at least it keeps the lights on, I suppose. Uh, but if the debt ceiling is not raised, well, then Congress has no ability to raise funds to pay its bills. So then the government has to shut down because the Treasury Department just runs out of cash. It's like if you're just buying groceries every week on your credit card and you hit the credit card limit and the credit card company won't raise the limit, well, you just have to shut down to stop buying groceries because you're out of cash. And that would not be great for the economy. There's been government shutdowns before, um, which I don't think have had a huge economic impact. Other than it's hugely irresponsible to operate this way and it just looks bad and I think annoys people uh, because when the government shuts down, you can't get things like passports or um, maybe go to national parks. Um, the national parks will shut down because the park rangers get furloughed. So that's not a great look. Um, the problem, though, is when the government just completely runs out of cash, which apparently is going to be the case in October, well, then it can't make interest payments on the national debt. So there is something like $26 trillion of national debt outstanding that the government has borrowed from various people that it has to make interest payments on. Well, if the government can't make an interest payment on the national debt because it's out of cash, well, then the federal government is in a state of default, which means it's not paying back what's owed. And it's not really clear what would happen if the federal government is in a state of default. What usually happens is um, people in the bond market will just stop loaning um, the entity additional funds who is in a state of default because people believe that they won't get their money repaid. I don't know if that would happen if the federal government is, a, is in technically a state of default, um, if people really believe that that means the government can't repay what's borrowed, or if it's just because of you know, political issues, the government can really repay what is borrowed, but you know, thanks to this political deadlock, it's just behind on payments. Also, what usually happens when a government's in a state of default is that interest rates go shooting way up. 
meaning the only way people will continue loaning the government money is if they can command a higher interest rate compared to before. I think that probably would happen in mid-October if the government misses interest payments on the national debt because private lenders would say, well, we'll continue loaning to the government, but we're going to demand a higher interest rate than before to compensate us for the risk that, well, we might miss an interest payment because of this this political gridlock that causes the government to shut down to the government to run out of cash. And that would be a real problem because higher interest rates would really put a break on whatever economic recovery we're seeing right now. So there's nothing good that could happen if the federal government runs out of cash and then defaults on interest payments on the national debt. It's just like how bad will the consequences be? Best case scenario, interest rates go up a little bit because of that increased risk of a more serious long-term default. Worst case scenario is that the government starts running into difficulty further borrowing to cover the budget deficit. And that would be a real problem because the budget deficit is so large every year and that if the government can't borrow, say, 3 or $4 trillion to cover the budget deficit, it would either have to raise taxes by that amount or cut spending by that amount to present a balanced budget, which would, you know, that would be quite something to see, to say the least. Has the... Um it has the debt reached a point that has exceeded uh, GDP or GNP? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we blew past that during COVID. Um, so the national debt is over 100% of GDP. And I think that's mostly symbolic in the sense that usually when that happens in a country, bad things happen. There's a slowdown in economic growth or interest rates start rising because people start questioning the government's ability to repay what it's borrowed. You know, it's kind of like if you own one house, the bank thinks you can repay that mortgage. But if you own, say, 20 houses and you have a bunch of mortgage debt, well, then the bank might start to question, you know, can you really repay all these mortgages you've taken out? And the bank might start charging you a higher interest rate to continue taking out mortgages. So that's always a risk with the debt to GDP ratio exceeds 100%. What that means in practice is if you wanted to pay off the national debt, say, next year, you would have to seize every single good or service produced in the economy and use that to pay off the national debt, which, I mean, that's just not feasible, but it gives kind of some perspective in terms of how big the national debt is. And if you go back to um, the mid-2000s, even the late 2000s, before the financial crisis, the debt-to-GDP ratio of the U.S. was lower than 40%, which means that national debt was only 40% of GDP. So you fast forward 10 to 12 years, we've gone from debt-to-GDP of 40% to over 100%. That's just a striking explosion of the national debt over such a short amount of time. That's never happened in peacetime. Um, it could happen during war, right, during World War II, um, the debt-to-GDP ratio goes shooting way up above 100%, which makes sense because of all the government spending and borrowing to pay for the war effort. But for that to happen during peacetime um, is really unprecedented. What role does revenue play in all of this? Um, so whatever the government spends that exceeds tax revenue um, has to be borrowed to cover the difference. You know, it's kind of like if you have a job and you're bringing in monthly income 
but your monthly expenditures exceed that monthly income, you borrow to cover the difference. So that's what's happening um, at the federal level. Government expenditures exceed tax revenues. So the difference is borrowed. That's where the annual budget deficit comes from. And that's why the national debt, which is just accumulated accumulation of past deficits, is now hitting the debt limit. So if tax revenue could go up to cover what the government is spending, well, you wouldn't have to borrow anything, and the debt limit would be a non-issue. Um, the problem is that the government is spending so much more than what it's collecting in taxes every year that there's just no conceivable way to increase taxes to make up that shortfall. So if you're talking about a budget deficit of $3 trillion in a particular year, which means the government is spending $3 trillion more than what it's bringing in, in in the form of taxes, um, to kind of make that maybe more concrete, in a good economic year, the personal income tax brings in about $2 trillion worth of revenue. So if you want to increase revenue by $3 trillion to eliminate the annual budget deficit, you'd, more, you'd have to more than double the personal income tax rate and just assume everyone pays it, which wouldn't happen. If you tried to do that, there'd be widespread tax avoidance, lots of transactions would move to the black market to avoid taxes and so forth. But that just shows the size of government spending compared to revenue and that the shortfall would have to be covered by, say, doubling the personal income tax rate. Uh, people talk about raising the corporate income tax rate to cover the difference. That's a red herring because the corporate income tax brings in so little revenue every year. Even before it was cut with President Trump, it was only bringing in something like $250 billion every year. So you could double it, have it bring in $500 billion, and that's really a drop in the bucket with a $3 trillion budget deficit. The only way out of this is some combination of maybe slightly higher taxes, but substantially reduced government expenditures. And there just isn't the political will to do that because that would involve a compromise between the Republicans and the Democrats. You know, no one party's gonna stick its neck out and do that, because they will immediately be hammered by the other party for raising taxes or cutting spending, which is just someone's benefit. So onward we go with these massive budget deficits. Well, speaking of, uh, of shutdowns, of course, uh, everybody knows that uh, earlier this week, um, Facebook globally shut down for what five or six hours something like that but i got an interesting email from uh, a, a political candidate that's doing a lot of online fundraising claiming that their online fundraising took a big hit because of the facebook shutdown and using it as a way to create some urgency for additional contributions and and it it made me wonder, Chris. In in your opinion, what is the economic fallout of of a shutdown with social media like Facebook and Twitter? For the six hour shutdown, I think it's fairly minimal. Facebook stock price took a hit. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg lost. I forget the exact number. You know, maybe, I think it's like four or five billion dollars worth of personal wealth. But he's worth over $120 billion, so for him, $5 billion is kind of a drop in the bucket. So I don't think a short-run um, shutdown is a big deal. If Facebook just disappeared tomorrow, 
I, actually, I think a lot of people's lives would be better off because social media is toxic in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but what would happen is that you'd see a stock market correction because you have these famous FANG stocks, so Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google. I guess there's two, there's two A's of things. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. So if one of those things, Facebook, just disappeared, you know, that would cause the stock market to really crater, not just because of the loss of that stock, but it would increase a lot of uncertainty about everything else. So that would cause probably some economic problems. Um, I think another problem um, that the Facebook shutdown illustrated is just how massive these social media companies are, and that if one of them disappears, you know, a lot of things online just kind of grind to a halt because there are no real alternatives to, say, Facebook for social media. They own Instagram. They own WhatsApp, which is apparently a widely used chat app overseas. You know, if Google disappeared, um, you know, that would lead to a lot of problems because so many people are reliant on things like the Google search engine, Gmail, and so forth. So I think it's maybe some... It's an argument for people who might want to use antitrust law to break up these social media companies, make them smaller, reduce their power, and not make it so that they're too big to fail. And we talked about too big to fail banks back in the financial crisis last year. Well, now perhaps we have too big to fail social media companies. And also there's the, the concern about um, censorship. Are some voices being shut down on social media companies? Um, in the sense that there's only maybe you know one social media company that everyone uses. If someone gets uh, blacklisted from that social media company, they have nowhere really else to go, which also is some fodder for the idea that these social media companies should be broken up and, and made smaller. So we're not reliant on just one company. If that one company goes down, we're in real trouble. And then if one company you know bans someone from speaking, you know there's alternative platforms that they could use. Well, and and at the same time, you know, we have uh, testimony going on in Congress uh, uh, with the uh, Commerce Subcommittee from uh, former Facebook product manager Francis Hogan, um, and and so there there is some discussion of the possibility of some sort of government intervention through oversight or regulation. Um, how does how does that play out? So, from what I could tell of those hearings, um, the so-called whistleblower thing that Facebook wasn't censoring enough, that they're letting too much so-called hate speech be on the platform uh, with, like, the January 6th protest and so forth. So, it strikes me that if anything was going to come out of these hearings, it would just be more government control over social media companies and more government and more censorship by these companies of dissenting voices at behest of the government. So if anything, it would just accelerate current trends where if you go back like 10 or 15 years, there was complete free speech on social media platforms. You know, you could say uh, whatever you wanted on Facebook um, within reason, you know, you can't make threats and things like that. But, you know, if you have, you know, whatever political view you wanted to talk about on Facebook, that seems fair game. And the trend has been more and more censorship. So, Famously, early in the shutdown last April, there was a Facebook group, something to the effect of Michiganders Against Excessive Quarantine, I think was the name. It had a couple hundred thousand people in it. People were just saying that 
they didn't agree with the governor shutting down the Michigan economy early in the pandemic, which you could agree with or you could disagree with it, but it seems like free speech would cover people disagreeing with public policy. Well, Facebook just shut that group down and that group disappeared. So if anything comes from these hearings, I think we're going to see more and more of that because the so-called whistleblower is trying to claim that a big problem with political discourse is that there's too much free speech on social media companies right now. I don't think we would see Facebook being broken up because of these hearings. I think we would just see more and more censorship at the heads of the government from, from them. Well, let's, let's go back to uh, what's happening with the uh, urgency of um, Congress getting an agreement on raising the uh, debt ceiling. How is Wall Street reacting to that? Um, it seems like not super well is that the market did not so great in September and continues to lose points into October. The market was down yesterday. Um, I don't think the market has opened yet today, but I'll, we'll have to see what happens today. So there has been, we're not a real bear market territory yet, but there has been a broader market decline. Certainly, um, the debt ceiling issue is not helping things because it just introduces a bunch of uncertainty into the market. You know, will the government shut down? Will the government start missing interest payments on the national debt? It's like we've talked about before on this program, the market just hates uncertainty. So I think that's contributing to the market declining, and there's other things contributing to it as well. There's still supply chain issues. I think we've been talking about supply chain issues on this program every month for like the last year because these issues don't seem to be going away. And if anything, they seem to be getting worse. When you look at the number of ships stacked up at ports around the country, uh, there's something like a one to two week backlog at the port of Los Angeles to offload cargo, which means that it's getting harder to buy finished goods that were produced overseas, and it's harder for U.S. manufacturers to get raw materials imported from overseas, which is putting a hindrance on the economic recovery. So that's certainly not helping the market. And then we have this Chinese situation where you have Evergrande, this big real estate company in, in China that's going to default on a bunch of real estate debt, which is kind of like the financial crisis here a dozen years ago, now beginning in China. And then the question is, well, how much contagion will happen as a result? Will it be confined to China or will it start spreading out across world financial markets like the U.S. financial crisis did a dozen years ago? That's certainly not helping the market either. So there's just all this uncertainty right now in terms of China, in terms of the supply chain, in terms of the debt ceiling, in terms of, hey, what's COVID going to be looking like moving into the cold winter months across the Midwest and the Northeast of the U.S. And I think all those things are starting to de depress the market, which is why we're seeing the slide in stock prices that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. So really things are, things are not super great. You know, you, we would have thought that had a vaccine been available for the last six months like it has, uh, things would be back to normal. Um, life would kind of be back to 2019. And that's not the case, which I think is really disconcerting. Because if a vaccine's not going to do the trick, you know, what's, what's it going to take? You know, what's it going to take on top of the vaccine to get things back to normal? I just can't think of anything else besides a vaccine that would end a global pandemic. So if the vaccine can't end the pandemic, I really don't know what can and now I read something that, that hinted that um, unemployment 
is uh, at at reasonably low rates, all things considered, and there's some concern that there are still lots of positions to fill um, as we start trying to return back to normal. Are people dropping out of the workforce, and and how is that even possible? Yeah, that's uh, persistent problem, these labor market shortages. I think they're starting to improve with the enhanced unemployment benefits expiring last month, but that is not out yet to confirm confirm that or not. Um, though anecdotally, it seems like there are some more people coming in for job openings now compared to, say, this summer, but I'm not sure to what extent that is because the data isn't there yet. Uh, I think people are dropping out of the labor force for a couple of reasons. Um, first, the population is getting older as the baby boomers uh, move into retirement age, and the birth rate has been low for the last 30 years or so. So these retired baby boomers are not being replaced by new workers. So if you look at the population of prime working age individuals, which is roughly 25 to 54 people who are like in their prime working age, that's actually decreasing now. So the labor force in terms of prime working age people is getting smaller uh, because of the baby boomers um, aging out of the labor force, which is going to make it harder for businesses to find uh, workers for job openings. Um, I think what happened during COVID um, is that uh, the shutdown and the big recession that happened caused a lot of people to retire early. That certainly happened a dozen years ago at the Great Recession where you might have a worker in his or her late 50s or early 60s who is thinking of working maybe four or five more years than retiring, but then the economy goes into a big recession, and they're like, well, I'm going to retire right now. It's not ideal, but maybe I just got laid off. Things are good. I'm going to retire early, You know, try to figure out a way to make that work. I think that happened in COVID, where the big COVID recession, which was the worst recession since the Great Depression, pushed a bunch of people into early retirement, so they're not coming back um, with the economy reopening. And I think there's also a lot of uncertainty with K-12 schools, where you might have families with two incomes, two people working. Um, in normal times, you know, the kids would be at school during working hours, but there's all this uncertainty about will schools shut down, will they not shut down. Um, if there's a couple of cases in the school, will that prompt schools to instantly move online? You've seen that happen across the country where couple tests come back positive, and all of a sudden the schools go virtual for a couple of days. Well, it's probably the case that a family doesn't feel comfortable having both parents go back to work if there's a chance where, hey, tomorrow, you know, my first grader is going to be online because you just can't leave a first grader at home by him or herself. So I think that's also contributing to people staying out of the labor force. So there's just lots of these headwinds pushing against people going back to work like they were back in 2019. Well, Chris, we're going to have to uh, end it there, but as always, thanks so much for spending some time with me and the listeners to help explain some of what we're reading in the headlines about the economy. And uh, I I always uh, look forward to our conversations. I always learn something, and I look forward to uh, visiting again next month. Sounds great. I do, too. Time always flies when we're talking, Tom, and today was no exception. It's hard to believe it's been 45 minutes already. <laughs> I know, right? Well, Chris, uh, keep up the good work, and thanks again. Hey, you're welcome, Tom. Always great to be here. Bye-bye. 
That was uh, Chris Douglas, economist from the University of Michigan, Flint. We have more of the Tom Sumner program coming up straight ahead after we take a short break. And then at the top of the hour, of course, it's Armchair Politics. Bill Weiscarver uh, is going to uh, join the roundtable for his inaugural appearance on armchair hi this is joe by from the blue lions and you're listening to the tom sumner program while we've been staying safe at home scientists have been on a journey the destination a COVID 19 vaccine this journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses scientists built from there with months of research and development cooperation with other experts worldwide and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. W.H. Weiscarver, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiscarver, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Weiscarver 
Wise Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Wise Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whwisecarver.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to the Money Programme. Tonight, on the Money Programme, we're going to look at money. Lots of it on film and in the studio. Some of it in nice piles, others in lovely clanky bits of loose change. Some of it neatly counted into fat little hundreds, delicate fivers stuffed into bulging wallets, nice crisp clean checks, pert pieces of copper coinage thrust deep into trouser pockets, romantic foreign money rolling against the thigh with rough familiarity, beautiful wayward calicute banknotes, filigree copper plating cheek by jowl with tumbling hexagonal milled edges rubbing gently against the terse leather of beautifully balanced bank books. Sorry, but I love money. All money. I've always wanted money to handle, to touch the smell of the rainwashed florin, the lure of the lira, the glitter and the glory of the guinea, the romance of the rouble, the feel of the franc, the heel of the Deutschmark, the cold antiseptic sting of the Swiss franc, and the sunburnt splendor of the Australian dollar. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now, the Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills will buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the bunchness of a banker. It's a tendency that makes the world go round, round, round. You can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go Money, 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 money. This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly. A girl with kaleidoscope eyes. Cellophane flowers of yellow and green towering over your head. Look for the girl with the sun in her eyes and she's gone. Bridge by a fountain where rocking horse people eat marshmallow pies. Everyone smiles as you drift past the flowers that grow so incredibly high. Newspaper taxis appear on the shore, waiting to take you away. Climb in the back with your head in the clouds, and you're gone! On a train in a station With plasticine porters With looking glass ties Suddenly, someone is there at the turnstile A girl with kaleidoscope eyes My bags last night, three flights. Zero hour, nine a.m. And I'm gonna be high.
earth so much I miss my wife It's lonely out in space On such a time Timeless Flight like this And I think it's gonna be a long, long time Till touchdown brings me back around to find Not the man that think I am at all No, no, no I'm a rocket man Rocket man Burning out its feet out hell on Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids In fact, it's cold as hell And there's no one there to raise them hmm, If you did All this science I don't understand <laughs> Just my job five days a week Rocket man <laughs> Rocket man Touchdown brings me back around to find Not the man they think I am at all No, no, no I'm a rocket man Rocket man Burning out his feet out hell on I think it's gonna be a long, long time And I think it's gonna be a long, long time Old-fashioned radio For a new Generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Someday show. Oh.
You pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>